We have a very long psalm ahead of us today, so we're going to save a little bit of time from reading it. We've sung it twice already, so I'm going to just work through it together with you and do it a little bit differently than we normally do. So, before we begin, begin. let's bow our heads and ask that God would make this truth a part of us. God, some days it feels like the cords of death ensnare us and are pulling us down into the earth. Yet this psalm gives us confidence that you will hear our cries even from the heights of heaven and you will answer and you will come to our rescue so that we may sing your praise. God, empower us to do that now. Make your truth a part of us, that we may sing it wherever we shall go. We may declare the power of the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. In our modern scientific age, whenever we face challenges, we like to quickly search out clinical solutions that will give us immediate relief. Prayer is just kind of something we do as a last-ditch effort. You know, the person who's tried everything else because you know, we don't really think it's going to be that effective. Or when we do pray, we just want God to snap his fingers and take our burden away. And he doesn't do that all the time. So we don't go to prayer often. But as we've been working through the Psalms this summer, we see that the Psalms are shaping our hearts, not just to make prayer a tool in our toolbox or some kind of injection of the cure. The Psalms are transforming our imaginations so that we are always connected to the sovereign God over all things who is at work for us and through us for our good. Prayer is meant to be the air we breathe, it's the poetic way in the Psalms of how we describe our emotions and guide our emotions to find their satisfaction in, in God himself. It transforms our eyes to see the world through God's perspective so that we will love righteousness, truth, beauty, mercy. And it inspires us to get to work fighting against corruption and evil and ugliness, lies and idolatry. Psalm 18 is nearly identical to 2 Samuel chapter 22, where David is nearing the end of his life. And he's reflecting on God's care for him through many battles, many trials in his life. And he recognizes how God was there with him through it all. He has run from attackers on all sides. He's faced sinful temptations and failures. He's been abandoned and betrayed by some of his closest family and friends. And through all of that, God has kept him and exalted him to become one of the most powerful men on the planet. And now, at the end of 2 Samuel, in Psalm 18 here, David is at the end of his life reflecting on God's sovereign care for him. And he expresses his devotion to God. And he writes this song in a way to encourage all who sing it with him to trust in this same God who mightily and repeatedly came to his defense. 
He wants us to let this song shape us so that you too will always know that David's God can be your rescuer too through any of your trials. You can know that God is a mighty warrior at work for you and through you for your salvation. So today we're going to do something just a little bit different than we normally do because the psalm is 50 verses long. We're not going to be able to go through every single phrase and analyze it in detail, analyze every metaphor. But I don't think David would really want us to do that. We could. It'll be consistently true with all of Scripture. But what David really wants us to do, he's inviting us to feel the weight of God's power at work for you. He wants to capture your imagination and inspire you to a life of prayer. So what we're going to do today is read one section at a time, and then I'll take a moment to explain a little bit of what David's talking about and give you some major points from that section to guide you in a moment of prayer following. So I'll read it and explain it, and then I'll give you a, a moment of silence. And silence at Redemption City Church means whatever noise the kids are making at the time. We will delight in it. And then I will wrap us up with a prayer to bring us back to the text again. So it'll be a guided prayer through Psalm 18. We're going to start in verses 1 through 3, focusing on God's strength. We need to establish some foundational truths in our hearts first to guide us through to the rest of the prayer. After that, we invite God into our battlefield of our souls in verses 4 to 6. We invite him to, he invites us to share our pains, fears, emotions, struggles, all of these things, asking him to come to battle for us, make our lives his battleground. Then we will shift in verses 7 to 19 to focus on God's conquest, where he stirs up all of his heavenly passion to come and fight on our behalf. Verses 31 to 35 give us confidence in God's faithfulness to those who seek him in this way. Then, well, that was 20 to 30. 31 to 45 give us God's con confidence in God's victory, knowing that he doesn't just fight for us. He doesn't just do the work to us. He'll accomplish it through us. So that finally, in verses 46 to, to 50, we can celebrate God's victory even before it's complete, confident it will, be, it will happen by singing God's praises for our salvation. So I'll leave a little, I left a little bit of space in your bulletin, even as I'm explaining it. So whatever comes to your mind and that you would want to bring to God related to these things, you can write it down for our time of prayer. So let's begin to pray this psalm together, looking at God's word, God's strength in Psalm chapter 18 in the first three verses. David cries out to God, I love you, Yahweh, my strength. Yahweh is the rock, is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon Yahweh, who is worthy to be praised. And I am saved from my enemies. 
So David first begins by proclaiming his love for Yahweh, the one who has protected him. The word for love here expresses this deep, gut-churning, heart-gripping affection. Oftentimes it's used to speak of the, word, of the idea of compassion. Compassion means to, to feel someone else's suffering so deeply that it moves you to act on their behalf. But David isn't feeling compassion towards God. He's realizing God has compassion for him. And he feels that tight love, that bond with God. He's not just saying he loves God. His whole body feels it. His entire life has experienced it. So much so that his heart is completely steadied by all that God is. He calls God my rock, my salvation, my refuge, all these things. All these metaphors steady his heart. God, he says, is a rock to him. That first word rock means like a cliff face, this towering face of a rock that is immovable, unshakable, massive. And God has placed, picked David up out of his trouble and put him at the top, far away from his enemies. There's another word for rock. It also means a giant boulder or a rocky mountain. Similar to what Moses experienced in Exodus 33. He has found a cleft in the rocky mountain that keeps him safe from all trouble. He takes refuge from the threat of his enemies. God shields him from all these attacks. While David hides in the cleft of this rocky mountain, God is a horn, a powerful weapon out fighting on David's behalf. What all of this stuff is to say, David knows nothing is stronger than God. God has all power, all authority over anything the world can throw at him. God is sovereign. He is in control. But more than that, God is good. He uses this strength and control for the good of his people. David sees God is altogether beautiful and lovely and worthy to be praised. This praise is not forced, but it's the overflowing emotion of someone who recognizes God's goodness and must respond in affection. These are foundational truths that must guide us into prayer. God is in control and he is good. You can't bring your problems to him if you don't believe those things. You won't bring your problems to him. If you don't think he's in control, why would you ask him to bring control over your circumstances? If you don't think he's good, why would you think he would care to help you anyway? You must believe these truths to pray, to bring any prayer to God. So now I invite you to bow your heads in silence for a moment and let's pray that God would make this, his strength and his goodness real to us. God, we love you because you are altogether lovely. And we declare that you are mighty over all of our weaknesses, all of our fears, all of our enemies. 
We see that you are good and you are worthy of praise. Please, God, let these truths be real to us as we now bring our needs before you, asking that you would work mightily for our good. Let's move on to verses four through six. To confess our weakness and call God into the battlefield of our own souls. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon Yahweh. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice. And my cry to him reached his ears. As I mentioned before, David wrote this at the end of his life, reflecting on how much death had come after him, and each time he narrowly escaped it. David literally ran from death for significant portions of his life. Saul, when he was king, sought to kill David. He sent armies after him every day. And when David would go hide among foreign cities, those other nations wanted to kill him. At times, the people who were following him were getting sick of running, so they wanted to kill him. And then when he's finally on the throne, his son wanted to get rid of him and overthrow his kingdom. Death was at his doorstep every single day. Sometimes you may feel like death has its cords wrapped around you and it's pulling you down into the grave. You're not dead yet, but you feel like you're at pretty close. Maybe you wish you were. What's the point of fighting? You work so hard every single week and can barely pay the bills. All of your closest relationships just feel empty to you. Everything good you want to pursue seems impossible for you. Maybe it's unpopular or even illegal. You want to cry out, but the invisible cords of death even have entangled your tongue and you can't speak words. The raging torrents of life's river rush over you and you struggle just to keep your head above water. Look at David's reminder in verse 6. From the deepest depths of his grave, he cried out to, for help. And from the heights of God's dwelling place in heaven, David's cry reached God's ears. God hears you. God is aware of your pain. He knows your sorrows. Even if you can't speak them, your groanings reach his ears and resonate down into his heart. There is no sorrow too great, no suffering too deep, no sin too gross, no shame too heavy that can keep your cries from reaching God's ears. So now let's take a moment to bring those cries to him. You can be certain in this place where God has brought his temple presence down among the gathered people, his spirit will hear your cries.
Now, there is no distance too great for our cries not to be heard. In Christ, you have brought your temple presence down to be this very gathering place with us. We now are confident that you will hear. So we pour out our burdens to you. I know that many in this room, as I look into their faces, I know I've heard their stories. They're full of longings and fears, unmet expectations and desires, pain, abandonment, betrayal. Sometimes we wonder, when will you act? How long, O Lord? Please, God. It feels like this is impossible. We can't escape. The cords are too tight. It's inevitable. Why don't we just quit? Unless you rescue us, God, we are doomed to the grave. After crying out to God for help, look how God responds. Look what David says in verses 7 through 19. It's a little longer section because David is so overwhelmed with God's response to his prayer. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made the darkness his covering, his canopy around him. Thick clouds dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. Yahweh also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Yahweh, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Yahweh was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. I love this part. This is my favorite part of this psalm. The sweet sound of your cries for help have risen up to the ears of God in his temple and it has stirred something in his spirit. As soon as God hears David's plea for help, it causes this cosmic uprising where he summons heaven and earth to come to David's rescue. Look at all this imagery David uses to describe God's response. Verse 7 speaks of the earth shaking, rocking, the foundations of the mountains quaking. Because God is angry when he hears that his servant David is in trouble. Verse 8 says God is so angry about his child being threatened that smoke rises out of his nostrils. Fire pours from his mouth. It's like someone disturbed a giant mighty dragon from his slumber. And you can feel the ground pound 
as that dragon comes out to find out who is threatening my servant. Obviously, this isn't a literal description of God. God is not a dragon. He's not holed up in a cave. The earth isn't shaking. God didn't really wield nature, thunders and lightnings and hailstones to take out David's army, the armies fighting against David. The vivid imagery in the psalm isn't trying to explain with scientific precision what happened, but emotional poetry, a different way to describe truth. This is how David feels about how God came to rescue him. God rescued him over and over in such ways that it felt like God summoned all of creation to come to his side. This is the flood of emotional imagery that David feels to de- and describes it, and describes his experience. Much of these images are common in ancient Near Eastern languages. People talk about their gods. But what's unique here is that David says, God, all of those images, all of that power and strength has been at work for me. On behalf of me, in my situation, answering my prayer. God bowed heaven and earth down to earth for David. He rode on angels. He brought an angelic army to fight for him. He covered up the sun. He brought the clouds and threw down lightnings and hailstones at his enemies. He brought floods of judgment upon them. David thought, these enemies are way too mighty for me, but they are nothing to God. Do you trust that God is not only mighty, but he is a mighty warrior fighting for you? David speaks like God moved all of heaven for him. God's wrath went to battle for him with dragon-like force. God wielded nature against David's enemies. Do you believe God could do that for you? Let's pause again and ask him to bring that strength to bear in your life. God, sometimes it it just feels like you're so far away in a distant cave, unconcerned about us. Help us to know, to feel in our bones with certainty that you are mighty, that you fight for us. Pour out your wrath on our enemies, particularly on Satan and all of his temptations and his snares in our lives. Give us eyes to see you fighting for us. Help us feel the earth quake as you go to battle for us. Give us confidence that nothing stands a chance against us when you are our defender. This last section ended with David confident that God delights in him. Perhaps you doubt that God would care for you and bring his strength to fight for you? What guarantee do you have that God would bring this power to battle for you? 
Well, let's read about God's faithfulness in verses 20 through 30. Yahweh dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of Yahweh and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from guilt. So Yahweh has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. Yahweh, my God, lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of Yahweh proves true. He's a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Now David expresses confidence that God is going to bring this mighty rescue to all of you who are blameless, perfectly righteous. Great. That's not very encouraging. That's not comforting because you all know that you are not blameless, right? You know you've sinned. There's guilt in your life. We're not innocent victims who need rescue. We are enemies of God who should be destroyed by this dragon wrath. So how can David say that God rescued him based on his own righteousness? Kevin addressed this apparent conflict in last week's psalm, in Psalm 17. How can David say he's blameless? Well, Kevin explained a couple of ways. One is that perhaps David is simply referring to this particular situation, this singular accusation. Regarding that thing, I'm blameless. I didn't do anything. Bring me vindication. In their accusations, and their confrontations, he truly is guiltless. Another possible thought uh, maybe alluded to in, ah, uh, where did that go? Verse 22, all his rules were before me. In God's law, there was provision for forgiveness to deal with sin and guilt. If you sin, you could go to the temple and you could offer a sacrifice that would pay for your guilt. When you walked out of there, you could consider yourself blameless. So maybe that's what David is feeling. I have... I'm right before God. I'm in good standing based on the sacrifice of a bull or a goat. And now God can come to my rescue. And there is some truth to that, but the book of Hebrews reminds us that those were only temporary provisions. They, weren't, they didn't clear out, wash away sin, and make us into brand new righteous people. David speaks as though he is always righteous. If you look at his record, you'll just see spotlessness. All of those sacrifices were pointing forward to another provision where God would offer a sacrifice to make you pure so he could look at you and see there is not one spot or wrinkle in this person. It's in this future sacrifice that David trusted and he was made blameless. David's righteousness isn't a self-righteousness, but God's righteousness gifted to him. David says in verse 28 that God brought light into his darkness. 
He acknowledges there's something external to him that was brought into him to give him a new nature. It's not a righteousness that's earned or proved, but given. Verse 30 explains more that it's God's perfect way that has become God's shield, even from his own guilt. It's God's righteousness in him that makes him able to stand. With that kind of righteousness, David knows God will move heaven and earth for him because it's not a temporary righteousness. God's not waiting. Maybe he'll hold on to righteousness for a little bit. So I'll bring my rescue. Oh, he lost it. Now I'm going to pull back my rescue. No, God gave him the righteousness. God is going to reward the righteousness that is in him. The victory is guaranteed. And now we know, years after David, that God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to walk in God's perfect, blameless, righteous way. He took the punishment on the cross that we deserve for our sin, our guilt, and rebellion. And just like David, who looked forward to him, though we look back to him, if we humble ourselves before Jesus, we receive his righteousness. And based on that foundation of Christ's righteousness, we can cry out to God with confidence that he will be faithful towards us, faithful towards his righteousness in us, and he will bring mighty victory into our lives. So let's take a moment to bow our heads before him and place all of our confidence in the righteousness, the sacrifice of Christ alone. God, we can't be righteous unless you give us your righteousness. We can't be faithful unless you give us your faithfulness. We can't stand before you blameless and make our cries known to you unless you give us blamelessness. All of these things you have given to us in Christ. Help us to put all of our confidence in him. Surrender it all to him. Trust in him alone as the source of our goodness. Depend on him alone as the foundation of our rescue. Help us to see, trust, know that all your promises are yes to us in him. All of our victories are certain in him, in Christ. Now with Christ's righteousness alive in you as the foundation of God's rescue, you can be confident that God's victory will work in your life. Look at verses 31 to 45 to see how that victory unfolds. For who is God but Yahweh? Who is a rock except our God? The God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You've given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand supported me. Your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. 
I pursued my enemies and overtook them and did not turn back till they were consumed. I thrust them through so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me. And those who hated me, I destroyed. They cried for help, but there was none to save. They cried to Yahweh, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as dust before the wind. I cast them out like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with the people. You made me the head of nations. People whom I had not known served me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. <coughs> the, the beginning of this section kind of looks like David's like, God's coming to my rescue, so I'm just going to put my feet up and watch him do this work. Run out his enemies. He marvels again at God's rock-like strength. He emphasizes again that this blamelessness comes from God, not himself. But then David shifts focus a little bit here, and he highlights how God secures his victory through David. God is a mighty warrior who fights not just for you, but through you. God gave David swift and steady feet like a deer. God gave him strength to pull back a bronze bow, a metal bow. How could anyone do that? He made David able to hold a giant heavy shield and gave him feet, a firm stance that he could stand immovable against the attacks. God guided his battle plan. He directed his sword thrusts so they would hit just perfect and drop his enemies. God weakened David's enemies so they would fall under his attacks. Suddenly, David says, fighting my enemies is like just scattering dust in the wind. This is easy. Throughout this section, David is trying to get us to see that God doesn't just come do the work for you. He empowered David to do the work he was called to do, to, find vict to fight and gain victory over his temptations, over his enemies. When God hears your cry for help, he doesn't just pick you up and then bring you to heaven. Problem solved. He gives you his spirit to strengthen you for the battle so that you will fight until the day your salvation is complete. In Christ you are saved from judgment. God looks at you and sees you as perfectly pure, blameless, righteous. But you must get up off your face and engage the battle while it still rages all around us. You're saved in one sense, but you must still fight for your salvation in another sense. And by God's power, you will endure until you achieve that peace. That tells us that this peace might not come the way we want. It might not come for many years or decades. David didn't get to sing this song until the end of his life. Those perfect relationships, the satisfying work, the freedom from temptation that we all want, the struggle against the world, it might not end until you're released from this life and arrive in the new creation. But you don't need to despair because God is at work in you to help you keep fighting. That's the confidence David had when he fought Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. 
David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of Yahweh of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you defiled. This day Yahweh will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. He could have given Goliath a heart attack, but he empowered David to defeat him. It's the same promise Paul gives to the Ephesians in chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Or to the Philippians in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. No matter what battle you face, You need to realize that in Christ, you are never a victim. You are a conqueror. You have the Holy Spirit of God in you, strengthening you for the battle, guaranteeing your victory based on Christ's righteousness. You have the strength to get up and fight until your victory is complete, whether it's in this life or the next. Stop blaming addiction or depression or the system or society, your employer or that other person who's so difficult. God is stronger than all of them. We say that God is alive in us. Get to work then. Don't wait for someone else to come and fix your problem, to give you that job you need. God is already working in you. Whenever you fall, get up. Whenever you're weak, move forward. God promises as you keep fighting that one day by his power working in you, you will be exalted to his side. So let's pray again that God would give us this heart of a warrior, confident in his strength to help us fight another day. God, would you give us David's heart of confidence, which is your heart of strength in him. Give us hope that you are strengthening us for the battle. Help us stop blaming others, pointing the finger, acting like those things are too great to be overcome. Not only are you mighty, but you are a mighty warrior working in us. Give us certainty that you will sustain us. Give us confidence that victory is near. Remind us of your promise that soon we will be exalted with Christ into your eternally joyful presence. Amen. Finally, in verses 46 to 50, David reminds us that God accomplishes this victory in order that we will sing God's praise, that it would flow from our lips. Yahweh lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation. I can't help hold myself back from singing it. The God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who rescued me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the man of violence. For this I will praise you, Yahweh, among the nations, and sing to your name, Great salvation he brings to his king, and he shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Forever. David summarizes this whole psalm one more time, declaring God continues to live through him 
and God's rock-like strength is present in his life. It's been evident everywhere he looks. God is working and has worked salvation in many mighty ways for David, subduing enemies, exalting him to peace and prosperity. And verse 49 explains the purpose of it all. It says, for this, meaning for this reason, for this purpose, because of all these things God has done for me and through me, I will praise him wherever I go. He's reminding us that the heart of our prayers must be for more than simply comfort, peace for ourselves. Yes, we are promised those things when we seek him. And that's going to be wonderful when we achieve it eternally. But our joy and peace not comes from the absence of trouble, the absence of conflict, the absence of difficulty, but the presence of God causing us among us, causing us to respond to his goodness, his beauty with praise. Our greatest joy now and throughout all eternity will be in singing to him. In verse 50 will be our song. It's not a song about David and Israel. It's a song about one of David's sons. The son who will reign as king forever. The anointed Messiah, the Christ who shares God's steadfast love for all who cry out to him for mercy. The son who kept God's promises to David forever. Your rescue is accomplished by, through, and for Jesus Christ. He accomplished it on the cross in his death and resurrection. He rose from the dead to work it through you until you reach the end of your life by his spirit. And he does it so that you'll stand before him now and forever singing his praises. So let's bow our heads one more time and ask him to loosen our lips, free our hearts, Lift our hands to praise him for the mighty victory that he is working for us and through us for our salvation. God, we do ask that you would work in our lives so that you, we would be more free to sing your praises, that the words of this song would be on our lips. When you do rescue us, when you do deliver us in some mighty way, help us to find somebody to tell all about it so that they may know that God is faithful, God is mighty, God is good, and he has shown himself those things in my life. Let us be a testimony of your good mighty, righteous love towards us in Christ. Amen.